Before our reading this morning, let us remind our hearts of the promise the Lord has made in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Today's scripture reading is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Please take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have treated those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Well, again, good morning. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, if you're new, especially want to welcome you. Uh, we are making our way through. This is what we do. We love the Word of God, and not just running through the Word of God, but the Word of God running through us. And uh, we preach through books of the Bible here, and uh, we're making our way through uh, the entire book of Revelation. And we start um, the seven churches, our study in the seven churches this morning. And I want to make a couple things uh, just known up front about uh, when, when we talk about church, I know that can conjure up so many different ideas or feelings, uh, even in a room this size. And it can be anything from, I, I, I love the church, I love the local church, um, to uh, I have been hurt, I have been wounded, I have, I have pain, I have past and histories with the church and uh, th- that are very real, that are, that are very um, 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 impactful in, in your life. And, and, and again, uh, to that, I, I don't ever want to dismiss those, and, and to many of you, I would just say, I'm sorry. Um, but, but something about these letters to the local churches, they, ju- they just revealed to me um, some, some, some fundamental truths, biblical truths we must have about the church. And the first is this, that, that, that Jesus is the one who gives the identity to the church. The identity to the local church is not uh, man-made, it's not a man, it's not a board, it's not a woman, it's not, it's not anything like that. The identity of the church is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we experience when we have pain or suffer pain um, in the local church um, is, is ramifications that this is a collection of broken people redeemed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, right? 
And we are still people, although redeemed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit toward Christ-likeness. And so um, our identity cannot even be in our pain or in our sufferings. It cannot be in a, a leadership committee. It must be, the identity of the church must be Christ who will not fail us, who, who does heal us and makes us whole. A second thing about, about the church that I want to say is this, that Jesus loves the church. He, he loves his church so much so that he gave his life, the scripture tells us, he gave his life for her. He is the bride. He is the leader uh, of this uh, church. And so um, with that, Jesus knows best. Jesus knows what's best for um, our local community and the Capital C Church as a whole. And that this church, the church, is irreplaceable and necessary in our lives and in the world. I want to say that. It is necessary. It's irreplaceable in our lives individually and in our watching world. And I, 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 I say that based upon Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known, both in the heavenlies and here on earth. And so it is absolutely irreplaceable. It is the wisdom of God uh, going forth. But how many of you know, and you've, you've all heard the the, the, the phrases about the local church, right? The church is, is supposed to be a, a hospital and, and not a country club or whatever they, they are saying right now. And, and, uh, and, and to that I say, yeah, th that's right. It's a place for broken people. I, I like what one commentator said as I was reading this. Re he said that, that churches uh, should be viewed as living rooms and not showrooms. Have you ever walked into a showroom, right, uh, of, of a furniture store and everything is like perfect, they got the perfect lighting and everything's, you know, just, just spotless? Um, then on the other side of that, have you ever had anyone show up to your house unexpectedly, right? And what is the first words out of your mouth when somebody walks into your house unexpectedly? Sorry, 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 sorry for the mess, right? You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were coming. So, uh, you know, if, if, if you walk into my house right now, I have three kids. There's a bowl of cereal out, right? Because we rushed out of the door to get here for church. Uh, there's probably some clothes. Those could be mine. Shoes kicked off, mud on the wall, maybe some crayon that my three-year-old put, you know, or whatever. You know, it's like uh, all of that. That's just, that's our living room. That's our, our living space. But how in the churches, and maybe some of your experience has been mine before, is that we like to go, wait, 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 no, 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 we want to clean everything up, make it so perfect and tidy that no one ever sees in the nooks and crannies and sees the dust, right? Wait a minute, right? Are you ever have anybody open and over and they open that closet? <laughs> they're like looking for the bathroom at your house and they're like, which one? And you're like, no, and they just pull it open and you're like, oh, sorry, right? The church, listen to me, is a living room with our broke, our redeemed, yes, but broken lives all being shared together. And so there are going to be these moments of mess. There's going to be shortcomings even within the local community, the local body of Christ. And this makes sense based upon Luke 5 where Jesus tells the Pharisees and religious leaders and would tell us, listen, I didn't come to redeem or to call to repentance the well or the healthy. I came to call the who? The sick and the broken, Right? And so, again, on this journey together as the church, we have to understand there are going to be broken places and spaces within the church. And the seven letters, they reveal that, that even in these seven churches that the book of Revelation was written to specifically, there were still broken places and places of deficiency within them that Jesus, because he loves them so much, wants to address. He wants to call out. And today is no different in starting with the church of Ephesus. Okay, the church of Ephesus. Now, I'm going to try to preach and teach, and this is a, a tall ask for me, a little bit shorter 
so that we might respond at the end a little bit longer, asking the Holy Spirit how he wants to shape and mold in us individually and corporately the word of God. And so let's, let's get into uh, unpacking this. Again, let's remember the writer of the book of Revelation is who? It's John, one of the disciples. And at this point in writing Revelation, John is uh, probably around 80 plus years old. And he is, uh, again, most likely the last living disciple at this time. And so imagine the generations that he has lived through and he has preached faithfully. He has led in the church faithfully up until this point. Um, He has seen the other disciples, a lot of them, die brutal deaths as martyrs for the proclamation uh, of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And in fact, uh, prior to his writing Revelation, um, he was, they they tried to boil him to death. And it didn't take, (laughs) okay? He didn't die in that. And then they exiled him to the island of Patmos that we learned about last week. And so just imagine John's physical state on Patmos what he must have looked like, what he must have felt. But I love last week, what do we see John doing on the Lord's Day? We saw him worshiping Jesus, right? After his life trying to be taken, him being exiled, right, for his testimony, for his his faith in Jesus, and he's worshiping the Lord. And it's in that moment that, that Christ shows up and gives him this letter for the churches. Now, interesting history would tell us, church history would tell us that John served as the bishop or the leader or overseer of the church at Ephesus. So imagine John's here in this moment, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus shows up and says, I want you to write a letter to seven churches, and the first one I want you to pick up your pen and write about is Ephesus. He's probably like, "Uh uh-oh, right? He's like, because I'm going to be responsible for all the negative in Ephesus, right? If he was the bishop or overseer for for years. And so this is what rolled out from from him to the the people in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, and I'm going to do background on the cities because I think it's important to understand where these cities were located and what was actually going on so you know how they were receiving these letters as Christians. Ephesus was a commercial hub. It was a a political hub for the Roman Empire. It was massive. It had 250,000 people, so one of the largest cities uh, in the Roman Empire. And so you had all of this commerce and all these different things going on. And those two things, political and, and commercial, were significant, but they, they, they kind of were, were, were overshadowed by its religious significance in the Roman Empire. Uh, in Ephesus, they had a temple uh, that was massive, larger than any temple uh, in, in its day and age. It was 100,000 square feet, and it was the Temple of Artemis. And so we have a, we have a rendering of that because it, it, was, it was destroyed. But it's 100,000 square feet of solid marble that set up on, on one of the highest places in, in Ephesus to, to show its point of, uh, really, of, of worship for this community. And in Ephesus, these sacrifices were made to the statue or goddess of Diana in, in the temple of Artemis. And people would come, political leaders, and all these different people would come, and they would gather around this, hoping that this deity would bless them with fertility and, and prosperity. And so it became a massive epicenter of pagan idolatry and worship. Okay, again, the backdrop to what these Christians are facing in, in, in this city. Interestingly, uh, 40 years prior to John writing Revelation, someone showed up in Ephesus and planted a church. His name was Paul. And you can see this in the book of, of uh, Acts and then also in a letter written to the Ephesians that Paul wrote called Letter to the Ephesians. Okay, so read it. It's a great letter. You should read it. It's in your Bible, by the way. Um, 
Ephesus, or the church in Ephesus, was known for its strong teaching and the knowledge of the word of God. It had some of the best teachers and best preachers of the day come through and stay. And like we said, John was its bishop, its overseer. You can read that in Acts 18, in Acts 19, in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul leaves them with a warning and told uh, the leaders in, in, in the church in Ephesus to protect the flock, protect the teaching. Guard your doctrine, if you will, right? Build solid theological base. Ignatius, a church father, wrote to the, the Ephesians commending them that no false teaching had gained any hearing in their church. And remember, they're in like the epicenter of pagan worship, okay? And he's going, no false teaching has gained traction in the church. That's beautiful. And then Jesus comes in verse 1 and going, hey, I want to I write to you. I want to leave you a letter. I want to to talk to you about some things. And the basic outline of all seven churches is this. There's an affirmation, there's a correction, and then there's a promise. An affirmation, a correction, and a promise, or an encouragement. And by the way, the church needs all three of those things at all times. And and, and I'm going to be careful not to draw one-for-one conclusions here. Like they were dealing with it, and we deal with it, and this is the response. I want the Holy Spirit to speak to our church, our lives individually, and our lives corporately. And after preaching this message already one time in the 9 a.m., I can tell you the Holy Spirit is faithful to do that, to press it in the areas of our heart where we need to individually and in our hearts corporately. And to be honest, with this church particularly, I don't think it's going to be hard to make the connection for us in the Bible belt, okay? So first verse says this, Jesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So actually, the first thing in the letter is not about the church. It's about who? Jesus, the foundation. And so it pulls one of those images from the vision last week. And I love this image for the church at Ephesus, particularly the one who holds the seven stars. This idea of Jesus holding tightly his church that his firm grasp on his church is present and is there and is eternal, that the future of the church is not in my hands or a staff or the elders or a group of people. The hope of the church and the grip of the church is in Jesus' hands. Like that should just give us like a sigh of relief, amen? But then it goes that he's the one who walks among the lampstands. Now think back to your Old Testament, talked a little bit about this last week. Who was the one who walked among the lampstand in the temple? The priests, right? Okay, so here Jesus again is putting himself as going, I am the what? I'm the high priest, I'm the priest, and I'm walking among my lampstands. And the reason the priest walked among the lampstands was that he was the one in charge of filling them with oil and keeping them lit, right? So the aroma and the fragrance and the vision and the light of God would always be seen. And Jesus is going, I'm the one doing that among my churches. I'm keeping the oil filled. I'm keeping the wicks trimmed so that these churches might be the light to the watching world. And I love that it says that Jesus is walking around. It's like a picture of care, that he knows his church, he's always aware of what's happening, that nothing escapes his knowledge and his attention. And that is where it begins. That's where this this letter starts. And I think that's really caring, actually, of the Lord for the Ephesians and for us. Because then he's gonna speak very affirming words in verses two and three, is he not? Look at it. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you don't bear with those who have evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles. He's kind of reiterating what I said they were known for um, historically. 
In verse 7, he said to the Nicolaitans, like, you hate what they do. Now, I want to be careful. In the 9 a.m., I, 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 don't, I hope I didn't say this, but like, he's not saying he hates the Nicolaitans. He says he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we don't know a lot about them. I'm going to talk more about them in, in, in a couple weeks. Historically, we don't know what those deeds were, but in some way or some fashion, those deeds were detracting from the glory of God and faithfulness to Jesus and his word. Potentially, the Nicolaitans were people who were putting the emphasis or identity of the church on themselves. And Jesus is going, I hate those kind of deeds when you build my house upon the foundation of men. Okay? And so he's going, listen, you stand for truth, and to that, I applaud you. Like, I affirm you. You don't tolerate false teachers. You, you have a maturity about you that can discern truth from falsehood. You hate what I hate. You oppose what I oppose. Your doctrine, your theology, it's solid. Church in Ephesus, well done. You've listened to good teaching for the last 30 or 40 years. You, you, you've applied that good teaching by building great doctrines and great theologies. Um, and maybe at this point, we might look at this church and go, that's a church I want to sign up for. Anybody else? Like, that sounds good. They're going after God. They're getting it done. Culture has squeezed them, and they didn't grow weary. They, in fact, got stronger. There's this patient endurance. They discerned what good doctrine was and what bad doctrine was. Like, I, I'm all about that. They knew their Bibles and didn't roll over. Yeah. But then verse 4. And this is not just some trite thing. Verse 4 is a big, significant verse and call out, right? This is the correction. And what does Jesus say to this church? But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Ah, there it is. There's the correction. This is the loving word from the Lord. Again, I want to level with you that this church is trying to do things correctly, Ephesus. They're building doctrinal statements and having solid theology. They're trying to understand their Bible and be biblically discerning. But hear me. You can be striving after all the right things and lose sight of the point of it all. That's what I believe Jesus is saying here. You have these things and I affirm them and they are good. However, you have lost sight of the one thing that matters. This is very reminiscent to Matthew chapter 7 um, that, that Jesus paints this picture of, of someone standing before the Lord on the Lord's day. And do you, you remember that scene? And they say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. We prophesied, we healed, we cast out demons. And what is one of the most terrifying passages in, in all the scripture? The Lord looks back at them and what does he say? Well done. He says, depart from me. I don't know you. In fact, it's, it's, it, he calls them workers of lawlessness but I did all these things. Jesus, we did all these things, right? Or how about Paul, who writes to the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth, one of the most spiritually alive churches on the history of the planet. He says this, and, I and if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so to remove mountains, but not have love, what does he say? I am... I'm decent. I'm a good theologian. No, he says, I am nothing. 
In other words, you can have all of the spiritual power, you can have all the prophecy, you can have all the tongues, you can have all of the quote-unquote faith in the world, not faith in God, I'm just saying faith in the world, and without love, it's for naught. He'd say in other places that without love, you're like a clanging cymbal. These are strong words. These are strong words to them. These are strong words to us. But maybe at this point, you'd be asking, first love, what is that? What, what, what love is he talking about? Is he talking about the love for God? Did they lose their love for God? Did they lose their love for other people? And to that, I think we have to say, yes. When the Bible talks about our love, it's not talking just about a singular focus. In fact, same way when Jesus goes, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Here's the greatest commandment. It's to love the Lord God with all that you are, every fiber of who you are. But he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we think about our first love, it includes our zeal and our affection for God and also for others. This is, again, 1 John 4.20, right? 1 John 4.20 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I, I don't want to be known as a liar, right? Like, nobody wants to be known as a liar. But somebody who's going to speak um, Love for God and dislike or hate his brother is a liar, John would tell us there in 1 John 4, 20. And so let me tell you, it is not biblically possible to say, I love God and am passionate about him. I just don't like you. Ephesians 1, 15, the letter to Ephesus by Paul. What were they like at first? Look at it. We don't have to guess, guys. For this reason, because I, Paul, have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, like your love for God, your zeal, your affection for him. And what else? Your love toward all the saints. Your love toward the church. Your love for people. That's what they look like at first. However, what has happened over time, and at this point, again, the church is probably 30 to 40 years old, the warmth of their love had given place to a lifeless, lifeless orthodoxy. Hear me. There is nothing wrong with orthodoxy. There's nothing wrong with orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity. We want that, and that's why he affirms that at the very beginning. However, when that orthodoxy becomes lifeless and loveless, it is not biblical orthodoxy. And so he's calling them back to this place of their first love. And I said this in the first um, sermon of our series, talking about this book, the book of Revelation, as a prophecy. That the book being a prophecy gives the church what our prophetic witness should be. And Revelation doesn't give us guesswork on what prophecy is. Prophecy or a prophetic witness is this, the word of God advancing and the testimony of Jesus. Look at it in chapter 1 of Revelation. Okay, That is what the prophetic witness is. Now hear me, that is both a declaration of the word of God and testimony of Jesus and a display of those two things as well. Does that make sense? A verbal articulation of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and from our lives, a declaration of what that is, a display of 
of the love and grace and mercy and holiness of Jesus to one another, to a watching world. And so what has taken place here in Ephesus is that they have lost, if you will, that display portion of the love of God. They are unfaithful to the covenantal task that Jesus has given them to display his testimony and his word to the watching world. So listen, they hate what God hates and everybody knows what they are opposed to. However, do they love what God loves? It is not an either or. Church, we love what God loves and we oppose what God opposes. The enemy has done such a crafty thing within the church to pit things that God wants together against one another, right? Are you a word church or are you a spirit church? Like, are, 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 you, are, are you, are you, you know, do you experience God or do you really focus on like knowing the truth? Well, are you deep? Are you wide? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, here's what I do know. God wants them together in his bride. He wants us to be a church that is understanding and deeply rooted in the word of God that is also displaying the word of God. He is, he is a God of grace and truth. He's somebody who wants us to be deep and wide. He wants us to be a church full of the word and full of his spirit, right? Full of knowledge and full of experience, right? He wants us to be all of those things, not pitted against each other. Listen, that is the work of the enemy. To divide, to go, that's a word church, that's a spirit church. No, what about a church? Could you imagine? what a church would look like if they saw a convergence of all those things. Holy Spirit, help the Parks Church to be that kind of community with great biblical theology, great doctrine, but who hasn't lost their first love and zeal, who stands as a light in a dark place, who stands as a people who love those who don't know Jesus, who love those who do know Jesus, and so there is a solution here. There is a call to action that Jesus gives to them. He doesn't just go, hey, let me affirm you. Let me give you a correction. Go on your way. He goes, no, this is how I want you to hear this correction. Look at it in verse 5. There's three things. Some of you skip the first one. You go straight to the second one, the word repent. That's the second word. The first word is what? Remember. Remember. And this is what I talked about at the end of, of worship, is that this is a very biblical response when Jesus brings conviction, when the Holy Spirit brings correction or conviction in our lives, is that we need to recall or remember from where Jesus has saved us from, how he's, what he's called us from and what he's called us to. So recall this. It's not just a cognitive activity. It is something that is met with actual action in our lives. And in remembering, here's what we'll find we need to do. The next word, repent to turn. Repent is a pivot word, to, to turn toward what they did at first. Again, Jesus leaves no guesswork for the Ephesians in what they need to do. They need to go back to their first love, the things that they did at the very beginning. What did they do at the very beginning? Well, I showed you in Ephesians chapter 1, but let's go a little bit further back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, again, where this church in Ephesus is just starting. It's just rolling out, right? And listen, we, uh, having 
planted this church and started this church, like I, I, I don't know, again, exactly what they were walking through, but I know the excitement in those early days of church planting, right? Like even the zeal that you have, that you just want to tell everybody about Jesus and you want them to join your community in walking with faith in a certain community. So I can imagine that happening here. But look, they had a little bit of different stuff going on. Look at this. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you, first off? <laughs> like, can you imagine being those disciples on the other end of that? Those, those Christians, right, in Ephesus who were trying to cast out an evil spirit from this man, and the evil spirit goes, I don't know y'all. You're like, well, we should have prayed more, right? Like, I told you, you know, like, it kind of would have been, you know. Anyway, uh, and the man in whom was, had the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Very different church planting experience than what we've had. Um, verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, remember we're in Ephesus, remember that epicenter of magic and all of those things happening, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is an incredible amount of money, Ton, tons of money. They're just throwing into this pile, burning them. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's, that's like the beginning of the church in Ephesus, y'all. Like there's just this powerful move of the Holy Spirit and Jesus advancing, so, so much so that at the end, verse 20, so the word of the Lord, right, the prophetic witness of the church is what? The word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus continued and increased and prevailed mightily. What has happened? You've lost your first love. You want to talk about a place that was probably pretty messy, pretty full of people just trying to figure out this newfound faith, right? Where they, they, they had a history in magic and they had a history in superstition and all of these other things. And they're just bringing their books. They've had this radical transformation. They're bringing all these things and they're just going, Jesus, we just want to follow you. We just want to love you. And this is where the teachers and the leaders and John uh, being the bishop comes around and goes, hey, that is great. That zeal needs to be tempered by the word of God. And that word of God is going to shape you and form you. Listen, uh, Ephesians, this letter is not a call to Ephesians to become immature. This is actually a call in the letter to the Ephesians to be more mature, a mature mature has lost their first love. And so it's recalling back to the way it was at the very beginning, that they've lost sight, that their devotion to the things of Jesus has actually superseded their, their devotion to Jesus himself, potentially. And I think this is where we might be able, if the Spirit would allow us to draw a line here, that it's really easy for us to be captured by, 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 by good doctrine and good biblical theology. But if those two things, those can become idols in our lives if they become disconnected from the heart of actually knowing Jesus himself. That we as a church potentially run the risk of falling into the Ephesian lane if we love being right more than we love being loved by Jesus and loving others in return from that love. Listen, humble and honest Christianity, if it gets replaced by professional Christianity, I think becomes this, what I used earlier, this lifeless picture of orthodoxy. Wrapped in an acceptable package that is so concerned with insulating ourselves rather than seeing the kingdom of God advance in power, in truth, in grace. That's what I see in Acts chapter 19. 
what happened with this church? I don't know. Uh, we don't know the whole history, the, the 30 or 40 years that this church has been in existence, but we know, the, we know this moment what has happened. We know that they have great doctrinal statements. They have incredi- incredible biblical theology, but they run the risk at the end of verse 5 of having an absolute worst-case scenario taking place. Look at it at the end of verse 5. It says, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Twice he says that. If you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. I'll remove your witness because you are not being faithful to the covenant promise I have asked of you. Wow. And listen, that's why we cannot make this this convicting statement, you've lost your first love, less than it is. This is a deep call out by Jesus to this church. Listen, you must yield to these words, he says. But he doesn't leave them with just this warning of removing their lampstand. He gives them a promise about his love. And I hope you pick this up at the very end of Vivian's reading in the text. Look at it in verse 7. And this will be true, verse 7, will be true of every, every, every letter we read. It says this, he who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this room, I'm praying that the Lord would dig us ears to hear what he is saying to us individually and corporately. I've said this for years. We will never be corporately what we're not individually. If we are not individually people who are captured by our first love, then we will never be that corporately as much as we talk about it. He says this, let him who has ears hear. And then he goes on to say, to the one who conquers or repents, remembers, repents, and does this, I will grant him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, when you hear the words tree of life, what book do you automatically think about? Genesis, it takes you back to the very beginning, right? It takes you back to the very garden scene. And that's purposeful. That's not Jesus just kind of, oh man, I just happened to slip into that one. This is very purposeful language by Jesus taking them back to the very beginning where it all started. That place absent prior to Genesis 3, that place where it was perfect paradise. And Jesus here is promising them, those who remember, repent, and do, those who return back to their first love, he is promising them life forevermore, not counterfeit life. Not life that is just full of more head knowledge, right, where we have big heads and shriveled hearts, but real life where our heads are full of the knowledge and the beauty of who God is, and our hearts are full of his glory, captured by his love, showing that love to a watching world. He takes us all the way back, and he goes, this is the life Jesus promises for you, if you'll trust him, if you'll repent and do. Now, here's where I'm going to end. The word tree here... The word tree in the Greek is the word zulon. And if you look that word zulon up in your Old Testament, I know that's Hebrew, but if you translated it into Greek, and then Greek in the New Testament, that word zulon is the same word used for cross. The cross of Christ. 
So here he is bringing up this idea of the tree of life, both in Eden, that Jesus is like, I'm going to bring us back for those who have put their faith and trust in me. I'm bringing us back to Eden, right? I'm recreating all things, the wholeness and the fullness of who Jesus is, right? But you have to understand part of that recreation was the cross of Jesus Christ. That that is our hope, that is our foundation as the church, that our life comes through Jesus giving his life for us. And so it's this call to trust. Listen, Jesus doesn't ask anything of his church. He hasn't infinitely demonstrated more by himself personally. So he's not asking his church to do something here in Ephesus. He hasn't infinitely and eternally done way ahead of them. Figure one, giving his life up for them. And he's going, come back to your first love. Come back to the thing that captured you, that grace, that mercy, that so that so invigorated your life in your faith. Come back to that. Let all the knowledge and the maturity that you have now be set on fire by that zeal that is true of the cross of Jesus Christ as if it were the first day of salvation for you. Do you remember that day, by the way? Do you remember the day that, that your life intersected with the true saving grace and mercy of Jesus? I hope you and I never lose sight of that day, actually. For some of you, you remember it very vividly. Maybe you were in high school or maybe you were in college. Maybe you, you were an adult and you, you remember those days of zeal, those days of passion, right? Whereas like all you wanted to do was just tell people about Jesus, right? Do you, anybody else? Like, and do you ever think back, as I do, oftentimes of thinking about those days and I like get super convicted because I'm like, what happened? Like, was there this point where the Lord wanted me to mature out of this zeal? And to that, I would say, absolutely not. Does the Lord want you to mature? Absolutely. But in that maturity, he wants you to keep that honest, first love kind of zeal to be like, listen, that zeal, that, 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 that passion I have for Jesus is now undergirded by his word, by that good doctrine, by that good theology. But I still want you to know about Jesus. I still want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh God, give us a picture of our first love again. Don't lose your first love. And some of you, you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And this morning stands as an invitation to you, an invitation to come to repent, to do, to turn and see that the tree of life is actually a man hanging there upon a tree who gave his life for you so that you could have life. And so I want to invite uh, Tess and the team up. And in our response and reflection time uh, this morning, uh, they're going to sing a song as we come and we grab these elements. But these elements, as I say, and by elements I mean the, the elements of communion, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, is a meal that those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, we take together to remind our hearts the love of Jesus and the salvation we have been afforded in him and him alone. Week after week, every week we take this meal. This meal is not just religious routine. This is meant to awaken our hearts and our minds to the love of Jesus toward us, to again call us back to the first love, to be the fuel by which we are motivated in our lives and in this church to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I've been asking the Holy Spirit to do in, in, in my life individually, in our life corporately through this text, to convict, to affirm, to convict us in those areas 
and to lead us in the way of everlasting life, to lead us to the promises that he makes that are good and true and right, that we as a church would have the right and proper motivation, and that would be the love of Jesus, the grace and mercy that has come to us. But I'm afraid for many of us, we've lost our first love. I don't think we're going to get to heaven. Jesus is going to applaud you and go, man, your Bible knowledge off the charts. Bible knowledge is great. Your church attendance, great. But not what I think Jesus is going to applaud. Not what I think he's going to look at you and me and go, well done. I think when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, it's all going to come into clear focus that what mattered most was him was John 15 was actually for real. That the only thing that matters is abiding in Jesus, being connected to him. Oh Lord, help us. Connect our hearts, connect our minds to him. So let me pray for us and ask, and then we'll go into this moment of reflection. Host, get ready to lead us. Holy Spirit, um, my words are absolutely insufficient to do anything apart from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take them and that you would mold them in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use these moments of reflection, these moments where we are able to bow our heads, even holding the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ before we take it and really evaluate whether or not that first love, that love that awakened us to the beauty of who you are, God, through Christ Jesus, is actually still burning in our lives, still burning in our church. And Lord, we repent of the ways we've erred, the ways that we have went astray from that. And Lord, we say we are returning, Lord God, to our first love. Now you give us a picture of what that means. Give us ways that our lives full of faith can display who you are. Lord, I thank you for this community of faith. I thank you for her endeavor to be both deep and wide, to be full of the word and full of your Holy Spirit. Lord, but we need your help. We cannot manufacture love. We cannot manufacture your spirit. We cannot manufacture knowledge. We need you. And so, Lord, we come as a people dependent, submitting ourselves to you. So, Holy Spirit, do in us individually something that might be reflected in us corporately for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.
Love, love. 